Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to God's Planning. As you have gathered by this point, this is a special episode uh, because circumstances in the world, uh, both at home and abroad, have made it such that it's difficult for folks to get to Mass or, in some cases, impossible. So, in response to that, we wanted to make the Liturgy of the Word more widely available. And though we remain hungry for the Eucharist, we can try, uh, at the very least, to be nourished uh, by the Scriptures and to anticipate the day when we can return to the regular use of the sacraments. So I'm joined here uh, by Father Patrick Briscoe and by Father Jacob Bertrand Janzik. This is Father Gregory Pine. And so we're going to send it over to Father Patrick in Providence with just a word about um, the virus, a word about our response, a word about how we make fruitful use of the scriptures and our time of preparation. I think the most important thing for us to remember as a church right now is that even though public um, worship may be postponed in some places, public worship is canceled in some places, the church does not cease to be at prayer. Um, In many places, parish priests are still offering public masses. Um, If your parish priest is not offering a public mass, he's still praying for you. He's still offering mass for you, for the welfare of your community. Monks and nuns throughout the world don't cease their rhythms of prayer just because of a little thing like plague, they never have. And so we have this opportunity to join uh, through the graces of our baptism, which reside always in our hearts. We have this opportunity to join the church, which continues to be ceaselessly at prayer. That's the process that we like to call um, spiritual communion, calling forth these graces, uniting ourselves um, to Christ, allowing allowing those graces of baptism, which reside always in our hearts, to become operative and actualized in a real way. We can call them forth um, by joining ourselves in an intentional way in prayer uh, with the church this Sunday. So that's what we're trying to offer here today on God's Plating, um, an in, a very intentional way of prayer um, so that we can continue to be united in the most powerful and effective way uh, possible. And, in the situation that we're facing. So as we begin, uh, we'll start here with the opening collect of Sunday's Mass, and then we'll read each of the first, second, and gospel readings and just offer a little bit of commentary for your own meditation and contemplation so as to dispose you well for spiritual communion. So together then, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, author of every mercy and of all goodness, who in fasting, prayer, and almsgiving have shown us a remedy for sin, look graciously on this confession of our lowliness, that we who are bowed down by our conscience may always be lifted up by your mercy. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. A reading from the book of Exodus. In those days, in their thirst for water, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, Why did you ever make us leave Egypt? Was it just to have us die here of thirst with our children and our livestock? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? A little more and they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go over there in front of the people, along with some of the elders of Israel, holding in your hand as you go the staff with which you struck the river. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock in Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will flow from it for the people to drink. This Moses did in the presence of the elders of Israel. The place was called Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled there and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord in our midst or not? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Father Patrick, 
tell us some things uh, for our own meditation about the Israelites, about the, uh, about the desert, and about grumbling. One, uh, one important thing I think we have to remember, um, one thing that the Lord is showing us in the spiritual life here, is that often the answers that we're looking for are not the ways of the Lord. The best thing the Israelites can imagine is to go back to Egypt, right? That's what they're saying. Well, why did we, why did, why did we leave Egypt? At least we had water in Egypt, right? Um, and then the Lord does something that they completely don't expect, something completely unexpected, something completely new in their midst um, by making water flow from a rock. And I think that this, this, has a, this has a very rich lesson in the spiritual life, allowing us all to, uh, allowing us all to have a, a renewed hope, a renewed confidence in the work of the Lord, because he, he will do things that we think are completely unimaginable. I think something else that's beautiful with regard to this passage is that we've been, you know, you follow the Israelites through the desert as part of our own Lenten journey. And it's like Exodus 14, that they cross the Red Sea. Exodus 15, that we hear their song of jubilation and triumph, that the Lord has delivered them from the hands of their enemies. And then it's in Exodus 16 that they begin complaining. So it's in Exodus 16 that, <laughs> that we hear fast. about their need for bread, their need for manna, and here in Exodus 17 about their need for water. And while on the one hand, it's, you know, it's completely understandable that one would kind of cry out for bodily sustenance. On the other hand, it's common among the fathers of the church to read them as forgetful. Uh, so the Lord shows himself through the scriptures as a covenant God, as one who is faithful, as one who continues to kind of make good on his promises to Israel. But Israel in response often proves faithless. Uh, so she, in her response to the Lord, vacillates and sometimes departs from the true worship. And so here we see already kind of a thumbnail sketch of a history of infidelity that is true of Israel, it's true of the church, uh, it's true of each of us. But it's a matter then of being recollected in the Lord's great deeds and his mighty works, uh, of being grateful for them, and so as mm. to cultivate a spirited disposition of covenant fidelity. For though we be faithless, yet he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, and by the grace that he gives us uh, through uh, the many uh, instruments or sacraments of his fidelity, we too can grow in our own response. Yeah, one of the things that I often think about, especially with the Israelites and their journey into the desert, their 40 years they're wandering is, and especially at the beginning here when they've just left Egypt is, is sort of the chaos that they faced of being uprooted, being driven out into the desert, not having food, being chased by Pharaoh's army, not having water, um, receiving the law, all of these things sort of threw everything into a spiral, at least from their perspective and in their, in their life. And here in, in this reading from Exodus, our Lord presents himself once again as sort of this divine stability in the face or in spite of everything else that seems to be um, changing or falling apart for the Israelites that, that despite all of that, the Lord is as, as Exodus or as the Lord says in Exodus, I will be standing there in front of you on the rock. You know, our Lord does not move. He is the pole around which all creation, um, all creation orbits. And, it's easy, I think, at times for us, even in little ways, to forget that 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 the Lord is the Lord is that divine stability in our lives, and so much more so at a time when you know, like this, with the coronavirus and all of, all of these things going on in the world, that the Lord is still that stability. The Lord is still the rock around which all the cosmos uh, revolves, and around which our life ought to revolve. That He provides that that sort of answer and that rock and that um, firm foundation for us. All right, so let's pass now to the second reading. 
A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For Christ, while we were still helpless, died at the appointed time for the ungodly. Indeed, only with difficulty does one die for a just person, though perhaps for a good person, one might even find courage to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here with this passage, I think that last line uh, is especially significant and especially powerful that God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To tie it in with the first reading, we talked about Israel's infidelity and God's fidelity. We talked about how God, you know, is there standing, as it were, on a rock. And I think that um, here we have manifest testimony to the fact that God loves us in the saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it's not because we merited it. It's not because we were especially receptive in the first century in Palestine. There was a, there was a thought abroad at the time of the Lord's coming that uh, the Messiah would visit his people when they proved themselves worthy or when they proved themselves faithful. And so it's fascinating that when the Lord comes, he identifies them as a wicked, a perverse, an adulterous generation. They are just like all that have come before. And if they are distinguished, it's because they are worse. And yet somehow uh, their misery and our misery attracts the Lord's mercy. For the Lord shows that he is good. He shows that he is uh, redeeming and saving by virtue of the fact that while we were still sinners, he died for us. So this for us is, is kind of chastening recognition that uh, it's not because we're good that God loves us. It's because God is good that he loves us. And uh, he shows that time and again through salvation history. And he continues to show it in each of our lives individually. I find it particularly beautiful here too, as St. Paul constantly returns to the, to the theme of the theological virtues. So he doesn't enunciate them as a sort of triad faith, hope, and love as he does in other places in his letters, but he speaks about faith, hope, and love in this short passage from, from Romans, that we have been justified by faith, that we can boast in the hope of the glory of God, that Christ died for us because of his love. And as we um, as we strive or as we strive to allow ourselves to be moved by by grace, it's in the theological virtues that ultimately uh, that ultimately we grow in union with God, that we grow in in union with His will and and His His love for us, that we become more godlike, transformed by the, the the virtues of faith, hope, and love. So, I think you know even even in these uh, you know when we find ourselves kind of at a loss for for what to do with respect to receiving the sacraments, for going to Mass, you know, if we're kind of quarantined or whatever, wherever we may find ourselves, that this this hope still abounds in God and his love for us. And uh, despite all of that chaos or craziness or confusion, um, the end of our the end of our life, the end of our existence of sharing in the beatific vision with God is is still is still the pursuit of our hearts and of our lives. There was a certain helplessness that marked the Israelites' movement from the desert. And um, we, we see this, too, in the Christian communities, um, uh, the kind of helplessness, well, helplessness of all mankind, uh, for, for whom Christ came to aid. 
Christ is a mediator in the way that Moses was a mediator. Moses was a kind of foreshadowing. He showed us how God would provide for us um, by allowing by allowing Moses to work um, through God's power such wonders as to provide water for thirsty people. Um, Christ is the ultimate mediator, the final mediator, and every every priest, every Christian participates in the mediation of Christ um, by allowing. God to bestow um, continual graces upon his people. Mediation is the way that God works. He sends special special messengers among his people. We saw that in Moses. Christ is the fulfillment of all of these promises, of all of these prophets, and um, everyone who would continue to speak of or to God um, relies on the graces, on the mediation of Christ, um, which cannot be which cannot be opposed. It cannot be stopped. It's a kind of um, completely victorious work. Um, and we can have a great confidence in that and continue to unite ourselves um, in the mediation of Christ um, even today. As we prepare then to pass on to the gospel, maybe just a word of introduction. We are in year A, so you know that on Sundays throughout the course of the church's life, we go from year A to year B to year C, and then we lather, rinse, repeat. And in, uh, in year A, during the season of Lent, uh, week one, we start with the temptation of the Lord. And so we hear about the 40 days that he spent in the wilderness. And then in week two, we hear about the transfiguration. So first, we get a sense for how we are to endure trial. And then second, we get a sense for the glory that lies in store so that we might be fortified um, so as to anticipate the life of heaven, which the Lord inaugurates in his passion, death and resurrection. And then in the third, fourth, and fifth week of Lent, we have the opportunity to read these very long passages from the Gospel of John. So today's passage is taken from John 4, his conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And then next week is the conversation with the man born blind and kind of all that surrounds that. And then week 11 is the long description of the resuscitation or resurrection of the Lord's friend, Lazarus. And I think that there, there are a variety of ways in which to read these passages, and we'll certainly talk about some here shortly. Uh, but one way to approach it is just to think about it in terms, so salvation is about friendship with Christ. Salvation is about an encounter with the Lord. And in each of these texts, we hear how the Lord encounters another individual human being and how that human being is marked by that encounter, saved by that encounter, transformed by that encounter. And so for us, it's there, I mean, they're especially good texts for Lexio Divina, because what is made present in the word and in the description of an event in sacred history is also made present uh, sacramentally and mystically uh, in our own lives. So it's not just that we're hearing a story that happened in the first century. It's something that's, that's happening to us in uh, the word's proclamation and in our interiorization of what is proclaimed. So we'll pass now to uh, the reading of the gospel. The Lord be with you. And, and with, with your spirit. spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you do not even have a bucket and the cistern is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give him will never thirst. The water I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered and said to him, I do not have a husband. Jesus answered her, You are right in saying, I do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking with you. At that moment, his disciples returned and were amazed that he was talking with a woman, but still no one said, what are you looking for? Or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Christ? They went out of the town and came to him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say in four months the harvest will be here? I tell you, look up and see the fields ripe for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving payment and gathering crops for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the saying is verified that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work and you are sharing the fruits of their work. Many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me everything I have done. 
When the Samaritans came to him, they invited him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word, and they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. There are many striking elements about this gospel, and I think one of one of those is is what we receive right at the beginning, the the sort of setup of the scene that Jesus comes across. So we have our Lord crossing through Samaria, entering into the land of of an enemy people to the Jews. The Samaritans and the Jews were not friends, and that's that's an understatement. And here at the well at midday, there's a woman alone at the hottest hour. Um, coming to draw water. And she's there at that time because she can be alone, because she wouldn't be bothered by those who would come in the cooler hours of the morning to draw water. She comes in her in her isolation to avoid uh, the stares and the shame of her sort of sinful state of living with a man who's not her husband. And in all of this, in her isolation, in the heat of the day, alone in her sin, enters the Savior enters the one who will give her living water. For me, that's, that's an incredible consolation because in, it, mirrors, it mirrors the brokenness of our own lives. And it also, it even reflects, you know, the brokenness of, of the Israelites in the desert that we heard about in the first reading and the, the, the Romans to whom St. Paul was writing in their sinfulness. And as Father Patrick said a few moments ago, the mediation of God is always at work. God is always entering into sort of the messiness of our life, uh, the brokenness, the difficulty, um, and he's coming to save. And that's precisely what he does. The second thing here that, that always strikes me when I read this, this gospel passage is our Lord's patience. The way in which our Lord sits down and works and takes the time to draw this woman to himself, not to, not to um, teachings of, of the Jews, not to some sort of ideology, but to his very self, to his person. And it's as that, as that encounter un, unravels and deepens, and as the woman begins to realize slowly with whom she's speaking, that we see her conversion at work. That The, the grace of our Lord is, is so gentle and patient, but so irresistible at the same time. And it's the same way in which the Lord works in our lives. You know, we can, we can look at wherever we are in our lives, we can look at sort of the wandering path that we've, that we've traveled. But I think hindsight is always our friend here because we can always see looking back the hand of our Lord and how he is patiently working and patiently continues to work with us to draw us to himself, that, that we may know him, that we may love him, but ultimately that we may be transformed and, uh, and, and live in, in his life and, and, as everybody else, you know, who encounters our Lord, not thirst again to be with him forever. That process of transformation, which you're speaking about, Father Jacob Bertrand, reminds me of uh, the inscription that's on the tombstone of now St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. Uh, The inscription on his tombstone reads, out of shadows and imagine things into the truth. And that's what Christ does as he transforms us, as he draws us out of the shadows of this world into into the truth, into the truth who is himself. 
Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That process of purification that every Christian undergoes, uh, that every believer encounters, means shedding things that we believe that, that are important and allowing them to pass away. To allow, to allow the shadows to be dispersed by the light, um, to let go of things which in the light of eternity aren't actually that important. And um, to be able to see things as Christ sees them uh, is another way of thinking about this. Um, that's what Jesus allows the, allows the woman at the well to do, to see her life as, as Christ sees it. Um, she can see herself as, as Jesus sees her. Um, and this doesn't cause her fear, but gives her confidence. Right, she runs back and tells everyone what she has experienced. Uh, there's a deep evangelical um, mystery at work here uh, that that encountering Christ is not a painful thing. Uh, it's not a harmful thing. It's not a hurtful thing. She's not drinking water from the well like it's spoonfuls of horrible cough syrup. You know, she she's deeply imbibing the waters of life and and being changed and renewed because of it. I think um, I think many of us are afraid or perhaps saddened by the prospect of a life in which the transformation that we've described is not possible as if to say that Christians write blank checks, you know, for God to come through on, but he doesn't always, it seems because in my own life, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to weigh your experience. You know, you have these trials, tribulations, difficulties, uh, perhaps characteristic faults or besetting sins, and it, it may seem, you know, as you go to confession time and time again, that they are not being alleviated or you're not uh, moving beyond them. But I think that uh, seeing the Lord's encounters with some of these individuals in the scriptures gives us a confidence to believe that it is possible and also to be better recollected in how the Lord is transforming our own lives. So like in this text, for instance, I remember reading Fulton Sheen's Life of Christ, and he talks about how uh, the woman gets gradually to better and better understand who Christ is. So you notice that at the beginning of the text, she refers to him as a Jew. And then the next uh, way by which she refers to him is sir. Uh, the, the word there in Greek is just kurios, so Lord of a sort, but not like the Lord. And then she refers to him as a prophet, or she recognizes that you are indeed a prophet. And then she comes to the realization that he is the Christ. And what's awesome is that she's able to communicate that. So not only is she a recipient of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his healing grace, but she's also made an agent in giving that grace to those to whom she testifies. And they come back and say that this is the savior of the world. So not only is she able to gain a confidence and certainty, but she's able to impart that confidence and certainty because the grace of God is living and effective. You know, it's, it's something that is it continues to be present. It continues to be operative in the world and it continues to heal us, to elevate us, to draw us out of a life, you know, that may be sin soaked and otherwise drossy, uh, but that is capable of redemption, that is capable of transformation. As you were saying that, I, I was thinking of the, the sort of, well, I guess the middle of the gospel, but kind of the end of, of the scene between Jesus and the Samaritan woman when the disciples return. And we have the sort of the gospel ends with the Samaritan woman going back to the town and proclaiming Christ. But even before she does that, the, the transformation and, and Christ, um, Christ's work in her is, is visible. It's almost tangible in some ways because the disciples come back um, and they're amazed. Jesus has not spoken to them. The woman has not spoken to them. They sort of stumble on the scene and they're amazed. They're amazed certainly that he's talking with the Samaritan woman, 
but amazed too, I think, because of her transformation, because of they, they can see Christ in her and Christ at work in her. You know, so amazed that they don't even interrupt. They, I just have this image in my mind of they sort of come back and as they realize what's happening, they just sort of stand there in awe as to, as to what's happening, but also the way in which our Lord is, is fulfilling his mission, not just to the Jews, but to, but to Gentiles, to save us, to save us all. And I really... I really like that that sort of image of the of the of the disciples just kind of coming back and and having being at a loss for words for the, for the beauty that that is that is happening and unfolding before them. So I suspect um, you know if you are interested in using this meditation as a way by which to prepare for spiritual communion, it might be helpful at this point to just describe how one would go about making a spiritual communion. So I think in the ordinary course, it's good you know to read the text of the mass. So to pray the collect as we did at the beginning of uh, the episode, uh, to read each of the readings and afford a little bit of time for meditation, and then to formulate your prayers, uh, your intercessions, your petitions, what you offer the spiritual sacrifice of your own communion for, and then uh, take time to make small acts of faith, hope, and love. Lord, it can be as simple as I believe, I hope, I adore, and I love you, and pray the Our Father, and then just in a moment of silence, ask the Lord to come into your heart more profoundly and to receive the effects of the sacrament of Holy Communion. So though you cannot receive um, the host uh, for for many uh, throughout the United States and the world, yet you can receive those effects because while the Lord uh, does promise to give us grace through the sacraments, he is not bound to give us grace through the sacraments and he can use those sacramental means in a way that applies uh, those fruits and merits to our hearts mystically. So take a time to do just that. And then you might consider concluding with a final prayer, which we can do now together. Uh, So this will be taken from the prayer after the communion and then the prayer over the people. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. As we receive the pledge of things yet hidden in heaven and are nourished while still on earth with the bread that comes from on high, we humbly entreat you, O Lord, that what is being brought about in us in mystery may come to true completion. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Bow down for the blessing. Direct, O Lord, we pray, the hearts of your faithful, and in your kindness grant your servants this grace, that abiding in the love of you and their neighbor, they may fulfill the whole of your commands. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. May God be with you. Uh, May God be with you and yours. Uh, We will continue to pray for you. We'll offer uh, mass for all those who listen to the podcast, all those uh, listening to this episode. And we ask that you pray for us as well. And we'll see you next time on God's Plane. Thanks for listening to God's Plane, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.